If we have not met, my name is Pastor Mark, one of the pastors here at the church. Um, stoked to have you here on Sunday nights. I missed last Sunday, Zach missed last Sunday night too, and I'm telling you, man, going a, a, like two weeks without Sunday night was actually kind of rough on me, so I don't say that to blow wind away, but I, I seriously, I, I realized not being here last week, like how much I missed it, and so um, good to be back with you, starting a new series tonight. So if you've got your Bible, um, you're going to want it so that you know that I'm not making this stuff up, and so if you'll open up to uh, Matthew 14, and if you don't have a Bible, we're going to get one in your hand so that you know I'm not making this stuff up. <clears throat> open up to Matthew 14. You can kind of just eyeball it down to verse 22 is where we'll be zeroing in. Matthew 14, we're going to kick it off in uh, verse 22. So let me pray uh, while you're finding your, uh, your page. Let me pray again real quick and uh, we'll get started. Jesus, just as we come before you um, now, not to, not to start a new chapter of the service, but to continue our worship of you through a study of your word, I just, um, Holy Spirit, just ask that you administer to your children now. Um, I'm just going to empty myself. Um, just have your way with your people, myself included. Um, even as I've gone through the, the passages, um, as you've had your way with me, would you just have your way with your children now, who you love even more than I love these people. You love them so much more. And so would you just minister to them in ways that I cannot. I'll be diligent to, to teach through your word, but you're the only one that can take words and turn them into a sermon. You're the only one that can take sentences and turn them into truth. You're the only one that can take paragraphs and, and turn them into life-changing um, revelation uh, through your word. And so, Holy Spirit, I just, I'm relying on you. I'm trusting you to do what you do best, which is interpret your word for your people. And so would you... Begin to lay a foundation for us as we kick this series off, not out of uh, condemnation, but out of conviction. And so we just, uh, we praise you, we're excited um, to, to learn from you and to hear from you and to ultimately glorify you. And so we turn this, the rest of the service over to you, Jesus, take over in your holy name. Amen. So, as I mentioned, we're starting a new series, Faith and Failure, which already sounds heavy. Some of you didn't realize this was the sermon series and you're going to pretend to go get water and leave, right? Because you don't want to talk about this, right? Faith and failure. And as Zach and I have told you, um, you know, we, we've planned, we planned these series a year ago, actually. We planned out this whole year, last November, I think. And um, we sat down and we talked through it. And one of the things that we came across in our discussions um, in, in planning out the whole year was, was taking a look at the, the, the life some of the incidences in the life of the apostle Peter and just the guy that, look, I'll be honest with you, there are a lot of people in the Bible I cannot identify with, right? Like Zach was saying that before, he's like, it's like, bro, I don't identify with David, right? Like, I don't identify with Solomon. So, like, I, I don't identify with Paul, really. But if there's anyone I can relate to, it's the apostle Peter, Right? And so this is just bare bones, all out, cards on the table, taking a look at faith and failure through a couple series, not all of them, but we're going to try to do justice to some of the major events in the Apostle Peter's life that put some of this stuff on display. And I hope, and you'll see in coming weeks, tonight we're going to really lay a foundation, but you'll see in coming weeks how Jesus uses these failures, Okay for his glory, the ways in which he turns them around, he redeems them, he restores them, he builds Christians, he builds the church, he builds people back up in the midst of their failures. And so I pray that this, is, this series is actually a relief in a lot of ways, okay? That it's, that it's a relief that you don't have to shoulder a lot of what you put on yourself in some of your failures and your faith. You're still res- we're still all responsible for our actions. We're responsible for those failures, but how we deal with them is, what was, is the, one of the ways that, that Jesus continues to show himself to other people is the way in which Christians respond to their failures. 
not their lack of failing. Does that make sense? And so we're going to take a look. We're going to take four weeks to go through technically five incidences because we're going to kind of hit two tonight. But we're going to take a look at a couple scenes from the Bible with the Apostle Peter. And tonight we're going to begin in Matthew 14. And it's, it's, it's one of the most popular Bible stories in the Bible, is it not? I mean, at some point, if you've grown up in the church, at some point, if you didn't grow up in the church, you've heard about this scene. Have you not? You've heard about the, the disciple that dares to step off of the boat to walk on the water and he begins to sink. I'm not going to reveal anything new tonight. Okay? For some of you, maybe you haven't heard this section taught through exegetically, maybe, and you, you certainly will hear a few new things as, as, as God worked through me in preparing this message. But this is one of those, it's a tale as old as time almost type things, right? And we've heard it. And I'm not going to try to strike some absolutely fascinating and mind-blowing new angle that you had no clue that the type of water molecule that he was stepping on was in some way related to an ancient Greek word. That, and we're not going to try any of that, Right? You've seen those tricks, right? Tonight is going to be laying a foundation. Laying a foundation for the coming weeks in which Jesus is going to build us back up in light of our failures. Not simply say, stop failing. Because that's honestly one of the biggest lies that the church has purported. That when you come to Christianity, your job is to simply stop failing. Right? And then you need to get to that point where you're not failing, and if you're not getting really close to that part, I'm going to question your faith if you even have one because you should, really be, you should really stop failing. That's not the Christian walk and that's why so many people get frustrated. That's why people come into the Christian walk and they realize that they continue to fail and they're like, well, then what do I need Christianity for? I was a failure before and I'm a failure now. Church didn't change anything for me. But again, it's how Jesus uses Christians in the midst of their failure is that changes everything. That's what ministers to a lost and broken world, okay? Just us not failing anymore won't minister to anyone. It really won't. The Pharisees tried that. It didn't work. In fact, they were the ones that Jesus was always fighting with. And so we're going to take a look at a couple instances. And again, I hope that this, this series is a relief. Is that it again, as always, it causes us to think less about ourselves and more about Jesus every day. Every day, we should be taking ourselves less seriously and Jesus more seriously. Every single day. And so we're going to take a look at this scene in Matthew 14. And it says, we're going to start in verse 22. It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. This is the Sea of Galilee. While he sent the multitudes away. See, what had just happened is that they had just fed the 5,000. Now, in those days, they really only counted the men. So 5,000 was, was likely more like 20,000, right? And, and you guys know the text, if you, if you look back at it, Jesus performed a miracle and he had them distribute the food, did he not? Anyone here served 5,000 people in the Mideastern, like in the Mideastern sun recently? He had the disciples go out. I mean, Jesus could have, if he wanted to, just said, everyone is full. Are we done here? And everyone's like, that was delicious. Like some Willy Wonka nonsense. Like just, that was good, I'm full, thanks, and they're out. He multiplied and then he had the disciples distribute. He wanted their hand in it. And so they're out hand distributing food to probably like 20,000 people. They're tired. As you see, look, following Jesus wasn't easy physically, emotionally, spiritually, it wasn't easy. It wasn't like good days every day. Yay, right? They're tired. They've been out in the Middle Eastern sun walking around all day ministering. So he, he wants to get the, the, the multitude away. It says in, in I, forget, I forget the verse now, it's totally lost on me, but it says that the, the multitude was, was starting to kind of, kind of come up on like a fury, like they were so excited. It was starting to be almost like this revival and Jesus actually wanted them to go away. There's lots of different, theological reasons why people think he did that. Some think because it was too early for the masses to be proclaiming this Messiah, all this craziness. Long story short, the Bible says he sent the multitude away. Okay? So he sends the multitude away after this crazy feeding. He says he sent the multitudes away and he went and sent the multitudes away. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. I love that about Jesus. Just scampers up mountains, right? Like his cardio was on point, 
right? Like he just, like he was just trained, right? It was like Bible study, top of the mountain, go. And he just, like it wasn't like right there on the flats, right? Jesus scampers up a mountain, but it's one of the ways that he could just get away from people sometimes, right? Go up on a mountain. Look, have you ever been up to the top of Mount Boney? Like not that many people just hanging out up there. It takes work to get up there, right? And so Jesus scampers up this mountain to be by himself and to pray. It says, now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. For the wind was contrary. And look, I've been to the Sea of Galilee. It's the, it's the second lowest, actually it's the, it's the lowest freshwater lake. It's the second lowest lake if you include the Dead Sea, which has salt in it, tons of salt, so much that you can't even sink in that, in the, in the Dead Sea. I've got pictures of me on my side in the water like this because it's got so much salt. But this is the lowest freshwater lake on the planet still to this day, surrounded by hills and mountains. I think the lake is somewhere about 680 feet below sea level all the way down to like 700 feet below sea level. And then the mountains go anywhere from 680 feet to about 2,000 feet. So there's large cliffs, there's rolling hills. And even to this day, this area is known for violent windstorms. Because what happens is when you've got wind coming from 2,000 feet up, coming over the cliffs and swooping down all the way to 680 feet below sea level, bringing cold air to a lower area, which has warmer air. As they collide, those two air temperatures create violent windstorms. I'm from the Midwest. I've, run, I've literally run from tornadoes before. I was in a baseball game and we had six twisters drop in a field. Six, like two of them were on the ground, like four of the other ones were like threatening. And that's what happens when cold fronts and hot fronts hit it, it swirls up this violent windstorm. It's still true today. So we already saw one of these earlier in the gospel. We see these violent windstorms and they still happen. And the Sea of Galilee is in this perfect place where these windstorms erupt out of nowhere. And that's what is currently happening. It says, he was tossed by the waves for the wind was contrary. Verse 25 says, now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And the fourth watch was about between 3 and 6 a.m. I don't know about you, but recently, if ever, I've never been in the middle of a violent wind and wave storm in a boat in the middle of a lake at 3 a.m. in the morning. It's just a bad start to your day, is it not? It's brutal, right? Like we take the Catalina Express and like we hit a wave, like, I'm gonna die, right? You're not, right? Rickety old ancient boat made out of wood and they're in the middle and they're getting slammed over and over and over. And it says, and the disciples saw him walking on the sea and they were troubled saying, it is a ghost and they cried out for fear. Now, one of the guys crying out for fear was the apostle Peter. The apostle Peter was a fisherman a Galilean fisherman. I would equate him to a modern day truck driver. He dressed a little gnarly, right? He wasn't on point with like Galilean fashion. He smelled a little weird. He worked with guts. He had a physical blue collar job. He restored boats all day. He restored nets all day. He was in and out of the water in the Middle Eastern sun. Blue collar roughneck. You know, we have a saying now that the guy swears like a sailor. It probably began from the fisherman community around Galilee. It was a tough life. You walk by, these fishermen were physical guys. They were strong men. They were dirty men. They smelled funny. They had a trade that they likely inherited from their parents, from their dad. Hardworking physical men known for cussing and, and, and not being on point with their dress and being dirty and, and scruffy. And, and this was Peter. And this fisherman is now in the middle of this lake and he's crying out out of fear. And he's rough around the edges. And yet we see that Peter was one of the first disciples called by Jesus. In Matthew four eighteen through 22, I'll read. 
And we see that Peter struggled in his faith even before he was a follower of Jesus, even before he was a disciple of Jesus. He failed in his faith before he even followed Jesus diligently. Some of you have known and loved Jesus and you've failed. And I pray by the grace of God that you're beginning to follow him even more diligently now. And here's the great grand news is that you're gonna continue to fail, but Jesus is gonna restore it. He's gonna use it for his glory. And so we see in Matthew 4, it says, so it was as the multitude pressed about Jesus to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. That's Peter's name before Jesus renamed him as he was known for doing. So he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's and asked him to put out a little from the land. He says, look, just push me off the land a bit. And Jesus sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep. He says, let's go fishing. That's what he said. It's the modern translation. He says, launch out into the deep and let your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. You know how many fish it takes to break one of those nets? It's insane. You know how strong like fishing wire is? They were using ropes. Great number of fish, their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners who in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man. Oh Lord. And some of you are perhaps there in your faith to where you don't believe you're worthy of following Jesus because you failed at following Jesus. And Peter falls down ashamed of his failure in faith. He says, Jesus, I can't follow you. I'm not worthy of following you. I've screwed up. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish which had been taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon Peter, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. That's Luke 5, 1 through 8. I think I referenced Matthew 4, 18 through 22. It's the same scene, but Luke has a few more descriptions. And so for some of you, look, one of your things is that, that you, you've come to Jesus with your failures and you've simply said, look, I don't deserve to follow you any farther. I can't be a better Christian, Jesus, so you might as well leave. And Jesus says, I have a higher calling for you. And we see in this first picture, we see that one of the ways that we fail in our faith is not trusting what Jesus says. We don't trust what Jesus says. He says, cast your net off. And we say, look, I already tried that. I don't know what you're pulling, Rabbi. I mean, I'll do it. We've done this. Nothing happened. And one of the ways that we fail in our faith is that we don't trust what Jesus says. We don't trust what Jesus says. Now, some of you say, well, then how how do I know what Jesus says? I'm glad you asked. Three ways. One, I wish he wrote a book about it, right? So I just want to know what God's will is for my life. If only he wrote a book about it, right? I just want to know what God thinks. I just wish he wrote a book about it. I just wish I could just talk with God and understand what he wants for my life. I wish he wrote a book about it. Some of you, it's not even that you don't trust what it says. It's that you don't trust when we say that when you read it, you'll begin to trust what he says. You won't even crack it. 
Because you don't trust that the Bible says that, look, this, this will feed you. Like I've tried, it's kind of boring. First of all, I don't know what Bible you're reading. Right? I pray that if anything, Zach and I, through our weird warped preaching perspective, we show you that the Bible is ridiculously interesting. Ridiculously interesting. But, but, but some of you don't even trust the fact that he will speak to you when you open the Bible. It's not that, no, I don't think there's a single, I've never met a single Christian be like, I don't want to hear from God. I've never met that Christian. What I do mean is people say, man, I want to hear from God. Are you reading your Bible? No. Right? Like basics, fundamentals here. I want to hear from Jesus. Start with the book he wrote. It's a good place to start. It's not the only way. But that's where we start, reading our scripture. Some of you right now are, are struggling in your faith. And I would encourage you to begin every day slowly reading. Every day reading. If you need a place to start, start in John. Start in Genesis. Start in Revelation if you think the Bible's boring. I don't care. Spielberg won't even try that book, right? It's too crazy. Just start hearing from God and what he can do through his living, breathing word. The Bible says that. It's not a cliche. It's true. This is living and breathing, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide the intents of your heart and mind. I can't do that. We cling to pastors right away because we want to hear from God when he's speaking to us right here perfectly. Zach and I are going to screw it up. We're going to screw it up in counseling. We're going to screw it up in answering your questions. By the grace of God, we're going to get closer to him and provide better counsel over time, but it'll never be what God can do through you, through the reading of his word. And so one of the ways that we trust and hear what Jesus says is through the reading of his scripture. I would challenge you, as I challenge myself when I want to get lazy in this, is to begin reading the scripture. And I love directing people, look, get, get, on, get in ministry with Jesus. Start with the book of Mark, maybe. It's the shortest gospel. Just get in to ministry with Jesus. Hear what he has to say. The second way is kind of, pr- is kind of maybe three-pronged. I'd say it's community. It, it's, it's the combination of preaching and teaching. It's the combination of discipleship and small groups. But we're in this now. But my question is, is Sunday nights your only time gathering with the body of Christ? And, and, I'm gonna, and Zach and I are going to do our part to, to usher in what's known as preached grace, which is the, one of the things that God gives preachers that we don't deserve, which is word from him for you and for us too. And, and preached grace is one of the things that you receive that you don't deserve. Preachers don't deserve grace from God. You don't deserve grace from God. That's why it's called grace, getting what you don't deserve. And so one of the ways that you hear from God, that you hear from Jesus himself is when the pastor is properly submitted to the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can work in and through the pastor to preach to you from God's word. But also, are you in community? Are you in tighter community? Acts says that the early church met in large groups and small groups. This is our large group. Are you in a small group? Are you at Channel Islands? Are you in InterVarsity? Are you at CLU? Are you in Young Life? If not, we've got discipleship groups. I'm in one as a pastor. Zach's in one as a pastor. Pastor Brett is in one as a pastor. Are you in discipleship? It's one of the ways that Jesus moves amongst his people. It's one of the ways that you can hear from Jesus as being in that type fellowship. And so reading his word through preached grace and discipleship and community, which is essentially the main functions of the church. Also, prayer. Thank goodness you don't need a mediator to get to Jesus. Run from any church that says you need someone else to get directly to Jesus. Run from that. It's the basis for the entire Protestant Reformation. There's no wall between you and Jesus. There's no curtain between you and the holies of holies anymore. People say, I want to hear from Jesus. You're not reading. You're not in discipleship. And we're not praying. And so we get caught in our failure in our faith. And yet we're blocking the ways in which Jesus wants to minister to us today. And so Peter didn't believe. He didn't trust what Jesus said when he said, cast your nets. He said, we've already done it this way. Maybe some of you right now are already thinking that about my cute little list. I've heard the whole Bible thing. 
I'll do it, but it's not going to work. That's where Peter failed. Jesus says, cast your net. All right, I don't, it's not gonna, we've done this. Nothing's going to happen. Read the word. Oh, I've done that. It's not going to happen. If you want that intimacy with Jesus, he will never return void. Never. Never. We build those walls. He doesn't. He shatters them if you let him. And so we read the Bible. We, we adhere to, to preached grace and discipleship and community and we pray. The Bible says pray without ceasing. It also said, Jesus himself also said, don't, don't, don't give me that redundant nonsense. Don't say the same prayer every night. It's essentially what he says, right? And he literally did the Lord's prayer and then said, don't preach repetitively. And then in the church, a lot of times, what do we do? Do the Lord's prayer repetitively. All day, meditating. It doesn't mean that your eyes locked. You're like, I'm at the job too bad, not working today. Got to pray without ceasing. Bible said so. No, constantly. I've told you, like when I'm on the motorcycle, it's mostly talking with Jesus. That's, that's 95% of what I'm thinking about. The other 5% is Chipotle, okay? Because I'm usually on my way to Chipotle at that point, thanking him for flavor, Okay? But are you praying without ceasing? Are you constantly communicating with Jesus? Because he wants to constantly be communicating with you. And via the Holy Spirit, if you open yourself up to that, you will hear Jesus. And then the question is, will you trust what he says? When Jesus says that sex is reserved for marriage, will you trust him that it's better that way? When Jesus says to put off slander and ego and pride and anger and gossip, do you trust that it will be better that way. Do we trust what Jesus says? It's one of the first and foremost ways that we fail in our faith. We don't trust that what he says is true and that the, the, the guidelines that he has set up for the Christian life are to our benefit and for our freedom, not our restriction. So Peter struggled trusting what Jesus says. And going back to our text, Taking a look at verse 26 again, it says, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost. This is a freaky scene. Let's not, let's not try to make this like some spiritual nonsense. Like Jesus was just glowing and it was just terrific. Like they were freaked out right now. And they had already seen Jesus calm the storm. They have seen him feed 5,000 people with, with a, a, a kid's lunchbox. It's like, we got a lunchbox. Jesus is like, that's enough, that'll do. And they see Jesus amidst these violent waves walking toward them. The same physical body that they've been following. And it's a freaky scene. They thought it was a ghost and they cried out in fear. And 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Do you know that fear not, or a combination of words, do not be afraid, or fear not, or do not fear, is the single most oft-repeated command in the Bible? The single most oft-repeated, and depending on a couple different variations, and even in context, I ran the numbers, even if we're not even talking about do not fear when God was about to like go gangster on someone, I've even taken those out because they don't really apply to the Christian walk necessarily. He was talking to pagans, he's talking to heathens, idolaters. Even if you just take directly applicable to people in faith, it's over 110 times in the Bible. There's no other command that he repeats that many times. The Christian life is not one of fear. And when we fail, we begin to slowly erode at our boldness in our faith. And every mistake, we seem to take a half step back. And 110 plus times, he says, don't be afraid. He knows that's paralyzing for humans. Fear, he says, I haven't given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Fear is from Satan. Power, love, and a sound mind is from God. 
And Satan loves using fear. He said, look how, how bad you screwed that up. You're an addict. You're an alcoholic. You're a pornographer. You've had sex before. You, 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 you don't deserve to follow Jesus. You failed him. And you begin to fear to do anything for him because you failed at times for him. Jesus says, do not have a spirit of fear. And these guys cried out in the middle of a storm. And let's be honest, we would too. I got kids I want to go home to. But these were fishermen and they were freaked out. This storm was gnarly. They lived on this lake. They knew this lake. It was insane. And they reached out in fear. This is a ghost. But immediately... Immediately. See, Jesus takes no pleasure in our fear. None. He doesn't sit back and say, you guys, it's time to learn a lesson. I'm just going to let you dwell on this for a couple minutes. Immediately. It says, immediately Jesus spoke to them. When you screw up, when you fail, immediately Jesus wants to speak to you. Immediately. He doesn't need to wait till Sunday. It's, man, I screwed up. I got four days till church. And I can hope that the pastor will answer some questions for him. Immediately, through his word, through prayer, through community, through fellowship. Jesus wants to speak to you immediately in your failure. Immediately to quell fear. He says, immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, be a good cheer. I love it. Jesus is out there like surfing with no board. He's like, be happy. Right? Like, hey, guys. Right? I think Jesus was hilarious, by the way. At this point, I think he started scampering to him. Like, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, relax there. Peter, why are you crying, homie? Like, relax. Like, it's like, hey, don't, hey, be a good cheer. And it's an exclamation point, right? Like, today's world, like on Facebook, if we don't use like 14,000 of them, we don't know if the people are excited or not. When it's one in the Bible, it's crazy. He's yelling. He's like, be a good cheer. Hey, I know you're scared. Stop. It is I. Do not be afraid. Is that answer enough for you? When you're afraid? Is that answer enough for you in your failure? That Jesus shows up and just says, hey, it's me. It's me. That'll begin to, that'll begin to, to, to work on you in terms of your perspective. Because if we saw Jesus as, look, even demons see Jesus. They've seen Jesus. That's why they're so afraid of him. That's why they run when he shows up or bow at his feet. But when you begin to meditate on who Jesus is, what he has done, when he just shows up and says, hey, 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 it's me. Is that enough for you or do we like want more? Do we need more? Yeah, but okay, I know, but what now? The waves are still going. When Jesus locks eyes on you in the midst of that faith failure, in the midst of that trial, that tribulation, and you, you, you crack the word and he says, look, I'm here, I am. Is that enough to calm you? I am, and now there's no reason to be afraid because I am he. It is I. When the creator of the universe says that to you, does it calm your heart? And he says that to you tonight. He says, look, whatever you brought here tonight, we all drug just massive ball, chain, luggage, baggage, nonsense in here. And Jesus just shows up and says, hey, hey, listen, hey, hey, look up, hey, hey. And Jesus says, look, it's me. It's me. Does that put you at peace? Does it give you a peace? The Bible says it surpasses all understanding. You're like, I don't even know why that brings me peace. I know, it surpasses all understanding. You don't have to describe it. I wish I could describe my peace. It says it surpasses all understanding. If you could describe it, it wouldn't surpass your understanding. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. When Carissa and I lost our first baby in the womb, we've lost two. So we're going to have our third kid, but we've had five pregnancies. 
the first time I remember knowing when I heard her out the door or out, out down the hall, I knew she had taken a call, um, and I knew it was over. And I grabbed her and I pulled her into bed, and we just we were just like, just just be here, Jesus, just just be here. And there's no reason in the world why we should have found peace in that moment. There's no reason we should have been angry. We should have fled from our faith. We should have said, no more. Church is clearly not fixing anything. But that was one of the first times in my life. Look, I don't have these radical spiritual moments every day. I don't know if that lets you down looking at me as a pastor. I don't. But sometimes God shows up in such profound ways. And that was one of those times. He just said, I am who I am. You don't need to be afraid. So whatever you brought here tonight, if Jesus says that to you, I pray that puts you at peace. He says, I am he. Don't be afraid. And Peter answered him. I love Peter. Just a bold goofball. Just a total goofball. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. This is bold. I mean, dig deep. You, in the midst of this storm, most of us are like, Jesus, get in the boat. Get in the boat. Fix it like last time. You're over here like, Jesus, get in the, get, we know it's you, but we're still, get in here, right? Peter's like, yo, I'm coming out there. Just say yes, right? Just tell me to come. All right, and then he goes. That's bold. That's bold, right? This is the guy that dropped everything, forsook everything, dropped his business. Says, I'm going to follow the rabbi. Now, Peter was married. We know that. It says that Jesus at one point healed his mother-in-law. So despite our, our Catholic friends, we love him to death, okay? They tell you he's the first pope never married. You just got to bypass scripture on that one, Okay. Imagine going home, right? Hey, honey, got a new job. Doing what? Camping with Jesus for a couple years. How are we going to eat? This guy dropped everything. Dropped his business. He didn't have any other skills. He hadn't been to seminary. He didn't have a law degree, right? He dropped everything. This guy's bold, just stumbling the whole way. How many of you feel like that? I'm in, I'm in, let's do it. Get back up. Oh, I don't deserve to. I'm still coming though. Here we go. Let's go. And you're just every day, just, just on your face. You get back up like, all right, let's do it. That's Peter, just truck driver, just lumbering through life, following Jesus, failing. He says, Jesus, just tell me to. I'm ready. Peter's bold, if nothing. He's going to mess up, but he's bold. And I love that about Peter. We are so timid in the American church. Well, I don't know if that's really going to work. We'll see. Nah, it's probably not going to work. Let's try something else. Right? Peter's willing to fail. Why? Because he's got his eyes on Jesus. He's following Jesus. But, sometimes he takes his eyes off Jesus. And so Jesus said to him, in verse 20, I says, come. Jesus says, come on, get out of here crazy. Come on, Peter. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. He walked on the water. A lot of times we forget that in that moment, Peter was part of a miracle. It says in John 14, 12, Jesus himself says, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So you study Jesus' life. So if you believe in me, you'll be able to do the things that I did on earth. And he says this, and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. And if you take a look at Matthew 10, 1, you see that Jesus himself had given authority to the apostles, to the disciples, to do signs and wonders. Look, here's the news. You try walking on the ocean, you're probably going to sink. Okay? I just want you to to know that. 
Jesus had given them marked ability to be a part of miracles in his public ministry. And so Peter steps out and he's partaking in a miracle. Now, real fast on miracles, what are miracles? What are miracles? A miracle, I would submit to you, is simply this. A miracle is a, it's not a freak of nature. This is not the undoing of everything natural. It's, it's not the, the, uh, a, a, a brief glimpse of everything up, that we know is upside down. It's actually the opposite. We live upside down. We live broken, fractured, sinful. What miracles give you is a brief glimpse into how it was, how it should be, and ultimately, how it will be. Let me explain. When God created the earth perfect, no sin, no fracture, no rebellion, perfect fellowship with him, all was possible until sin entered the world. And so when Jesus comes and he calms the storm as he did chapters prior to this, because he's creator God, in the incarnation, what happens is that we live upside down and for a brief moment we see how things were, how they should be, and how they will be again, which is creator God unbound, unbound by the physical reality of this world. So in the feeding of the 5,000, he says people are hungry. Why? Because we live in a sinful world. And when he performs that miracle and sends out and feeds everyone, he says, look, there was a time when no one was hungry. If it weren't for sin, you wouldn't have hunger today. And know that in heaven, you'll never be hungry again. And what happens is, is that Jesus comes in and he ushers in this miracle and Peter is allowed to be a part of it saying that, look, I'm creator God. Now he was submitted in the incarnation. He was 100% man at the same time, 100% God. And he didn't always avail himself to his divinity. He didn't always tap his divinity, but sometimes he did to show us a glimpse of the reality of his godhood. And in this moment, Peter steps out and for a brief moment, we see what things would have been like, what they should be like, and what they will be like again. I don't care if my iPad can't check Gmail. Okay, relax. And so he says, come. And Peter gets down off the boat and he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, check this out. Verse 30. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous. He was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. One of the ways that we fail Jesus in our faith is by not trusting what he says. Another way that we fail Jesus in our faith is by taking our eyes off him in the midst of trials. One of the ways that we fail Jesus in our faith is by taking our eyes off off of him in the midst of our trials. And we begin to focus on the trial. We begin to focus on the world. We begin to focus on our friends, our family, even good wholesome things by the earth standard are still nothing compared to keeping your eyes on Jesus. The waves were not a threat at this time. His lack of faith was the threat. And I've got three ways that you can keep your eyes on him. The first one is the Bible. Keeping your eyes on who he is, who he declares himself to be, and how he works in and through his people is one of the ways that in your trial, and some of you are in really big ones right now, if you're not in one right now, you're probably recently coming out of one, or sorry to tell you, you're probably headed into one. Who's excited for the week? <laughs> right? Comes Monday, right? Trials are simply a fact. In fact, they were, they were, Jesus said, as they hate you, they will, as they hate me, they will hate you. Acts promises persecution in the Christian church. We promise that will be mocked. Promise that will be spat upon. Promise that will be laughed at for our faith. 
we're either coming out of, currently in the midst of, or unknowing to us, headed into a trial. And what was so dangerous was that Peter allowed the trial to be his focal point. So what, again, whatever you drug here tonight, focused on that. Say, look, this is what I've got. How can Jesus help? I want you to reset your gaze toward Christ tonight. In the midst of your trial. Doesn't mean it goes away. Doesn't mean we pretend it doesn't exist. Doesn't mean we don't address it. It means that we simply repurpose our sight. Because he says, I am here. I am him. It is I. Don't be afraid. So whatever you brought here tonight, whatever you drug in here in terms of your trials, what you're coming out of, what you're currently in, quite possibly something in the future, the best possible advice I can give you is to keep your eyes on Jesus the whole time. The second way is preaching, discipleship, community. You've heard this list before, apparently. And the third way is prayer. The same way that you begin to learn who Jesus is, what he says about himself, how he wants to minister to you, is the same way you keep your eyes on him in the midst of trial. Because so often we say, I'll get back to my Bible reading, I'll get back to church once this trial is over. I don't feel worthy, I don't feel right, I don't feel right picking up the Bible, I'm in this muck, I'm in this mess. That is the perfect time to get into his word. That is the perfect time to sign up for a a discipleship club. That is the perfect time to be in prayer. Refocusing your eyes on him in the midst of that trial. It says, when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And this is an epic easy application. Trials make us feel like we're sinking, do they not? Trials make us feel like they're sinking, do they not? That we're about to drown, that we can't keep our head above water. And Peter's response is perfect. Jesus, save me. That is the perfect template for your response to your trial today, yesterday, tomorrow. Jesus, save me. Emptied, desperate, dying. Jesus, save me. I mean, I've I've told the story before, but one of the first times that I took Ethan, my oldest, to the beach years ago, first time he was kind of starting to run into the water and run away from it. You've seen it, right? This is California. Kids run in, ah, they run back out, and they run back, they get a little farther each time, they think they're all chesty, Ethan's like, I'm kind of pretty big, you're like, dude, you're two, right? He runs in, right is what? One's coming in, right? <laughs> Takes him out. I'm right there, I see the whole thing, right? I'm not like tanning, clearly, okay, right? Like, <laughs> I'm right there, knocked. In that moment, my boy is entirely ill-equipped to save himself. He is entirely ill-equipped to get out of that mess. He is entirely ill-equipped to get out of that trial in his life. And daddy reaches in and pulls him out. And that's exactly all and everything that Peter asked. That Jesus himself would reach in and pull him out from his trial. And immediately, immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and he caught him. Immediately. When you cry out to Jesus, poured out, open, empty, knowing that you're incapable of saving yourself, knowing that this world will not give you a peace that surpasses all understanding when you've lost a child completely emptied on your face. He said, Jesus, save me. I can tell you this. He will immediately. Immediately. Whether you're a Christian in a trial or a non-Christian, reaching out to be saved from eternity apart from him, Jesus plays no games. Immediately, he will catch you. This is your response to trial. It's no more, look what I've done. I might as well sink. I've failed Jesus. I don't deserve, forget that. 
Jesus, save me. And he reaches in. Some of you have been dragging a trial perhaps for a long time. And you're still in it. And you've never said those words, Jesus, save me. And Jesus won't always necessarily make the trial go away, but what he will do is be with you while you're in it. And to be with him is to know peace. Keep in mind, peace is not the absence of conflict. That's what the world makes it out to be. It's an unhealthy perspective on peace. I'm seeking peace, which means no conflict. No, no, no. The Bible doesn't declare any of that. Peace is the presence of Jesus in the middle of conflict. In the middle of losing a child the first time. In the middle of losing a child the second time. He doesn't say, if you're a Christian, bad things won't happen. He says, you're human, you're fractured. Bad things will happen. But for the Christian, I will be there with you. And he says, look, it's I. I'm here. And so he immediately stretches out his hand. And he caught him and he said to you, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt Jesus isn't pummeling him over the head here. He's reminding him that the waves were not the threat. The world is not the threat. Your trial is not the threat. As tough as it is, I'm there with you. But the trial is not the threat. Taking your eyes off Jesus in the middle of the trial is the threat. Because then you open yourself up to all the attack in the world. That's when Satan and his demons love to come in and tell you that you deserve every second of it as you go under. Instead of clinging to Christ as he stretches out and says, immediately, I got you. I'm here, it's me. This is, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? They were there in Matthew 8 when Jesus calmed the storm. Jesus reaches out, the creator of everything. In the beginning, God created. Colossians 1.16, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. All things. Creator of all things. There. He says, my hand is here for you. From heaven. Jesus says, I'm here. You're sinking and I'm here. Why did you doubt? They had seen him calm the storm. I love that story. The first time they got in the boat and a storm came, what was Jesus doing? Napping. Jesus was serious about naps. Serious. Some of you are college students, super serious about your napping. You never thought about Jesus like that. Now you can identify with him. Racked out in the middle of a storm in a wooden boat, not exactly comfy. It's like college. You could sleep on tile floor. It doesn't matter. This is the best tile I've ever slept on. I've seen so you sleep sitting up at school. Right? Jesus was on his nap game. Nap game strong, right? Like sleeping. The storm comes. They freak out. Creator of the universe in the boat with him. And he stands up. And he's just like, stop. And everything stops. Why did it stop? Because he created it. Everything submitted to him in the world. Everything that's physical submitted to Jesus. Everything that's spiritual submitted to Jesus. All of it from heaven underneath Jesus' authority. That's who I'm talking about. When we say Jesus, we're talking about creator God of all things. That stretches out his hand in the midst of your trial. He says, don't focus on your failure in this moment. Focus on me. And immediately he stretches out and he grips you. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. It's no surprise that creation bends to the will of the creator. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him. By the way, if you're of the, the, the mindset that Jesus was simply a good teacher, 
that he was simply a guy with a lot of great answers. He had a really good philosophy and we should have a chapter on him in every philosophy book and take a look at the things he said and the different angles we could take on him. He was simply a good teacher. If he was simply a good teacher who was not God, there is no way in heaven or on earth or in hell that he should accept worship as God. That makes him a bad teacher. If Zachariah ever asked for or receive willingly worship, we're going to freak out. I'm going to freak out. There's an angel in Revelation that John bowed before when he saw this angel. Angel freaks out. Get up. I ain't Jesus. Get up. I'm just one of you, the angel says. They bow down and they worship him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. If he's just a good teacher... At that moment, he says, stop worshiping me. I'm not God. Jesus is not simply a good teacher. Jesus is creator over all creation. High in the heavens, creator of the spiritual realm, creator of the physical realm, creator of angels, creator of humans, mountains, the sun, the moon, the stars, the mountain, the the rivers, the plains, the animals, the fish, the seas, the seasons, the days, the light, the dark. That's who Jesus is. That big and yet this close. No matter where you are in your trial, remember that it is that Jesus who is that big that says, I'm here. And remember that he's this close. We will fail Jesus in our faith. I need you to know Jesus will never fail us in our faith. We will fail Jesus in our faith. Jesus will never fail us in our faith. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Second Timothy two thirteen says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Second Thessalonians 3.3 3 says, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Jeremiah 29.11-13 through 13 says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. You will seek me with all your heart. First Corinthians 10.13 says, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Psalm 33.4, you gotta end with a psalm, right? Actually, we'll do two more. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. John 16, says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Psalm eighty six fifteen. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The creator of the universe, that big, that cosmic, stretches out his hand to you tonight if you're in a trial, coming out of one or going into one, and says, though you will fail me in your faith, I will never fail you in your faith. Be encouraged, amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we just, on that last list, I pray that just saturated us with your word. May we be reminded that you bring peace into our lives. 
Though the world would bring tribulation, you have overcome the world. The sin, the mess, the dirtiness that we live amongst was not how it was supposed to be. But it is our reality. And so you promise that in the midst of this new reality, this broken reality, this scary reality that we live in, you promise to be with us in the midst of it. No God of any fake religion promises to be there for us like that. Jesus, I pray that just you, you, you would be more highly lifted up in the hearts of those that are here tonight, myself included. That we see how big you are and yet how personal you've come. Holy Spirit, would you go to work on your people now as we enter this time of, of praise and singing? Jesus, for what you've done, for what you're beginning to do, for the ways in which you're healing us from our failures, restoring us and building us back up for your glory. Jesus, we thank you that you'll never fail us. Though we forsake you day in and day out, would you continue to comfort us and draw us closer to you so that the world may see how much you love us. That's all these things that I pray in your name. Amen.